Well, as you already know, uh, we have a guest speaker with us today. But you know how guest speakers eventually kind of become like family speakers? Well, I'm pretty sure that's what Randy Patton is for us now. Uh, we're so glad to have him with us. And if you're not familiar with him, uh, he's someone who's been dedicated to biblical counseling and the ministry of the word. He's coming up on actually uh, 50 years. Uh, it was the next April. It'll be 50 years of vocational ministry for him. And so we praise God for that. He brings uh, uh, with, with him a wealth of knowledge. Uh, but more than that, also a heart to help people grow, to help people change. And so uh, we're really glad to have him with us. Would you please welcome Randy Patton. Well, thank you, <clears throat> Pastor Chris, and good morning, everybody. Thank you for, for being here. I just love coming to this church, and uh, I told the Sunday school class earlier that I'm just amazed I get invited back, and <clears throat> appreciate so much the kindness of Pastor Chris inviting me. <clears throat> and you folks always receive, you always listen so well and receive the, the Word of God with an attitude of hungerness and uh, hunger and thirst, and it's just great to be here. And my wife uh, sends her greetings. She's been with me a couple of times here in the past and wishes she could be with me uh, today. And I also wanted to say another word of thank you to Pastor Andrew and the worship team for leading us in our worship. It's always very, very meaningful here, and it's just a, a privilege for me to be here. Uh, grab your Bible, if you would, please, and turn with me to Luke chapter 14. And... <clears throat> I'm speaking to you this morning on how to deal with uh, difficult people in life. <clears throat> I have assumed you know somebody like that. That uh, all of us have somebody that is a little bit uh, unusual in our lives. <clears throat> to set the stage, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 14. But let me set the stage this way. The four Gospels... Um, present a multifaceted view of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the four Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was written primarily for Jews, and it pictures Christ as the prophesied king. And the key word is the word fulfilled. Let's have a polite round of applause for your thoughtful pastor. <clears throat> So I was saying that the Gospel of Matthew was written primarily for Jews, and it pictures Christ as the prophesied king. And the key word in the book of Matthew is the word fulfilled. And as you read through it, Matthew, writing to Jews, keeps saying, and Christ did this, and that fulfilled the Old Testament. Christ did this, that fulfilled that promise from the Old Testament. The book of Mark <clears throat> was written with Romans in mind. And remember, Rome was in control over the, the Jewish people at that point. And it pictures Christ as the obedient servant. And the key word in the book of Mark is the word straightway, which you would expect from a, a servant. They do promptly what they were told to do. <clears throat> and the key verse in the book of Mark is chapter 10, verse 45, which says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
The Gospel of John was written with whoever is in mind or whosoever. And it pictures the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The key word in the Gospel of John is the word believe. It's used 98 times in 21 chapters. And the key <clears throat> verses of John of the Gospel of John are chapters 30 and 31, after he records seven specific I am statements that Christ makes. And then Christ performs seven distinct miracles in the Gospel of John, which all escalate in difficulty. It starts with the turning of water into wine, <clears throat> and then it concludes with him raising Lazarus from the dead just by speaking. And the Gospel of John in the next to last chapter says this, all of these things were written, or it says many other signs or miracles truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. The Gospel of Luke, which is our text for today, <clears throat> was written with Greeks in mind, and it pictures Christ as the perfect man. And the key phrase in the Gospel of Luke is the phrase, Son of Man. That's the term that Jesus Christ used to describe himself more than any other single term. He described himself as the Son of Man. And the key verse in the Gospel of Luke is chapter 19, verse 10, which says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So as we get ready to talk about dealing with difficult people in our lives from the Gospel of Luke, that means, therefore, that in Luke... What we see is a graphic illustration of the perfect man ministering to imperfect people in a perfect way. And I would suggest to you that the Gospel of Luke, and particularly Luke 14, 1 to 14, which we're going to give attention to, teaches every one of us how to deal with the people around us that have a way of pushing our buttons, irritating us, causing us to think, what were they thinking? Or other kind of similar responses. <clears throat> we find a graphic illustration of the perfect man dealing with imperfect people in a perfect way. With that introduction, would you grab your copy of the Word of God or the Bible in front of you under the, the seat there and turn with me to Luke chapter 14 and let's focus our attention for a moment on verses 1 to 14. Please listen as I read and follow the development of this uh, significant series of events. <clears throat> Luke 14, verse 1. And it came about when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were watching him closely. And there in front of him <clears throat> was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. 
And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they were how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the places of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come to you and say, Give place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friend or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. As I've uh, meditated on that passage of scripture, I believe that Luke chapter 14 delineates issues that you and I must face in order to minister to four different kinds of people in our lives. I thought a bit about this text on my trip to California. I live in in the Annapolis, Indiana area. And um, I was able to get a direct flight from uh, Indianapolis to Los Angeles, which was the longest uh, leg of the trip. And then I had a four-hour layover before I flew to Oakland. And as I sat in the waiting area, or as I got something to eat and sat there and watched, I mean, there's thousands of people around. And I just sat there and did some people watching, and I thought, God has sure created a bunch of weird-looking people. (laughs) And uh, if you stand in line to either board the plane or get off of it, you also find yourself thinking, God has sure invented or created a bunch of rude people. And I found myself thinking, you know, I'm just getting a living illustration of what I'm going to talk about on Sunday morning. So I think in this passage we just read, there's four distinct groups of people that Christ interacts. And again, this is the perfect man ministering to imperfect people in a perfect way. He is our model on how to deal with some of the crazy people or the people that are in our circumstances. So what would they be? Well, first of all, I'm going to call the first one Crazy Carl. And it's in verse, or excuse me, Critical Carl. It's in in verse 1. Look at it with me again. This is what sets the stage for all that happens. And it came about when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath deep bread that they were watching him closely. Now, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, uh, the pressure against Christ and the opposition against him has been developing. 
In fact, I'd just encourage you to look back just to chapter 13 and look with me at chapter 13, verse 14. Just these are the days right ahead of the event we're looking at in chapter 14. But look at uh, chapter 13, verse 14. Here's what it says. And the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. So the religious leader, peoples of influence in the religious world of that day are speaking publicly in opposition against Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17 in chapter 13. And the scripture says, And Christ said this, or as Christ said this, all his opponents were being humiliated and the entire multitude was rejoicing over the glorious things being done by him. Can you imagine that? The, the, the leaders are being humiliated publicly and the people, the common people are applauding. You can imagine what that does to fuel their attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Then look at verses 31 to 33. Verse 31 says, just at that time, some Pharisees came up saying to him, go away and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. In other words, they want to get rid of Christ, get, get, get him out of town. And Christ said to them, verse 32, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform um, cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. So a threat is announced against Christ, and he basically responds by saying, I'm going to continue healing, performing miracles, but I am leaving here because I'm supposed to die in Jerusalem and I can't die here. In other words, the threat on his life was legitimate. All right? That's the backdrop that leads us up to chapter 14, verse 1, where Christ is invited to the home of a Pharisee, a religious leader, for a meal. So, as we think about the opposition, I want to ask you, do you have some critical people in your life? Are there some people that drive you crazy? Are there some people in your circle that know how to push your buttons to get under your skin? Are there some people that seem in your circle that seem to know it all and want to tell you it all? Well, that's a little bit like what's happening here. This was a Sabbath day dinner. This was a big deal. Here's the lesson for us as we watch the perfect man ministering to imperfect people in a perfect way. The message for us, the key issue, is a willingness to face the pressure of scrutiny. The last part of verse 1 says they were watching him carefully. They were critics. They're just looking for something to go after him. The point is that a Christ-like person does not shut himself off from people who disagree with him. That's a word for us in a culture where cancel culture has become familiar terminology. A Christ-like person does not shut himself off from people just because they disagree with him. I want to acknowledge that as Christians, we have, strong, we have a strong sense of what's right and what's wrong. We're for what's right, we're against what's wrong. But if we're not careful as Christians, sometimes we can hold what we believe is right and do it in such a way that we shut ourselves off from people just because they differ with us. 
Christians have divided from other Christians because they differed on style of ministry or the denomination or group of churches that they're in. Some churches have split over differences of opinion on Bible versions. And certainly, haven't we all known or experienced churches that were divided over political issues and friendships that were sabotaged by just differences on politics? Christians at times have divided over issues because they differed on divorce or remarriage or taste in music, their attitude toward homeschooling, which college you promote or went to or didn't go to. And back in 2020, how many of our churches were grappling with the repercussions of differences of opinion over mask mandates? This verse is an instructive one for us. Christ differed significantly with the Pharisees. I mean, it's as big a difference as you could have. And yet when they invited him over for dinner, he went. I think there's a lesson for us. Jesus Christ was perfect. His model communicates to you and me that there is no theological compromise in choosing to eat with people that differ with you. And there's no theological compromise, and there's no theological badges of honor for people who choose to separate from people or not eat with people that they differ with. A Christ-like person does not shut himself off from people who disagree with him. There was a reaching out to people that it would have been easy to reject and a significant ministry opportunity came as a result. You know, the philosopher Plato said, the unexamined life is not worth living. I would say to you that the unexamined life is a carnal life. Or to put it another way, we all do better when we know we're being watched. The scripture speaks about it this way. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The psalmist put it this way. Psalm 119, 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. We all do better when we're in a room and we know there's a critic, and the critic is watching us. So as we seek to learn from the perfect man, ministering to imperfect people in a perfect way, I would encourage you to not avoid your critics at work, at family reunions, at church, in the neighborhood, but to be like Christ, who was willing to go into situations where he faced the scrutiny of a critic. Well, after going to the meal, uh, verses 2 to 6 lead us to the second one, and this is what I'm calling hurting Helen. Now, it was a man, and you remember, Christ goes to this meeting, and there shows up a man with dropsy. Uh, in light of what I've shown you about the criticism that Christ is facing in chapter 13, 
Um, this is, I think, is a setup. This is another Sabbath day, and here's this man with this disease. Now, dropsy was a swelling of the body due to the retention of excessive fluids. And the major underlying causes of dropsy were congestive heart failure, liver failure, kidney failure, and malnutrition. Today, what was called dropsy in the, old, in the New Testament times is called edema. In Bible times, it's treatment. The treatment for dropsy back then, 2,000 years ago, is treatment options were scanty and were aimed at causing the emptying of the system. That is, they did things to relieve the fluids from the body. And these remedies were rudimentary, rudimentary. they were erratic in action, and they were all marked by very inconvenient side effects. Basically, dropsy was a slow death. Ultimately, a person with dropsy drowned in their own bodily fluids. Now, the setting is, the Pharisees had made it real clear, they thought it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath. Christ shows up at this dinner where he's been invited, and it just so happens that here's a man and drops with dropsy right as you come in the door. The Pharisees controlled religious public opinion. They said it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath. And if a man that had dropsy was well enough to get to the dinner, he probably wasn't going to die that day. It was a slow death. No doubt the poor man is being used. It was a setup to catch Christ. Well, Jesus did what he could to help the man. He healed him. The lesson for us as we watch the perfect man ministering to imperfect people is the key lesson for us is a, we need to have a willingness to serve when you don't have to. That's what Christ did. I mean, the religious public opinion said you don't have to do anything on the Sabbath to heal that guy. But Christ had the ability to meet the need and he did. He had a willingness to serve even when he didn't have to. It's popular today in many Bible-believing churches to avoid reaching out to people who are really hurting. In some cases, there's a reluctance on the part of Christians to reach out to the divorced or to single parents or the unemployed or the illiterate or child molesters and their families, to the homeless, to homosexuals, to people with green hair, to the suicidal, to drug addicts, to the poor. A Christ-like person will be compassionate and reach out to hurting people. That's what we see him doing. I just want to encourage you to ponder for a moment. Who is the hurting person? Who's the hurting Helens in your life? Who are you seeking to help? If your honest answer is, I don't have anybody around me that needs help, then I would encourage you, when you leave today, open your eyes. 
It's not like any of us live in a world where there's a lack of hurting people. I would encourage you to seek to grow in your sensitivity to the hurting. One way of doing that is to ask people questions. Instead of talking about yourself, ask people about them. What their circumstances are. What their life history is like. Get to know them. A very practical thing is I would encourage all of us as we leave thinking about this and wanting to be more like Christ, who are reaching out to the hurting, is that we're alert to people. A couple of suggestions. So those of you that are adults, I would encourage you in the future when you come to a church service and you see somebody that you've not seen before, maybe it's a, a brand new visitor, go introduce yourself and sit with them. Students, listen to me. If you want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect man serving imperfect people in a perfect way, then that means when a new student comes to your school or a new person comes and joins your athletic team, that you reach out to them and introduce yourself and ask them to sit with you and you befriend them. Christ-like people turn their attention off of themselves and are focused on others. I think it's interesting that the that the fur, that when when Christ went against what was popular, he not only did what was right, but what has been so challenging to me from this passage, when Christ went against what was popular and did what was right, he did it in such a way that his critics were silenced. Did you notice verse six at the end of this paragraph after he healed the man? What what the scripture says. And they could make no reply to this. We need to serve others, but we need to serve others with wisdom. Let me seek to apply that to a popular or prevalent issue in our culture. In, in my city, back home, if you um, travel and do... Um, Key, key intersections in our community. There are going to be people standing at the intersection asking for money. We call them panhandlers or beggars or whatever term you want to use. But they're very prevalent, <clears throat> and especially at different parts of our, our community. And as I have paid attention to this, and I, when, every time I pull up to one, I'm thinking, okay, I've got some cash in my pocket. Should I give it to this person? Would I be Christ-like in doing that? You probably, some of you, think about the same challenge. It's interesting, in our community, there's been multiple news reports, articles, and so forth, and admonitions from the police and other government authorities telling us, do not give them money. If you want to do something to help people, give it to Wheeler Mission, or give it to other organizations and their statement are there are places where these individuals can go to get food to get overnight housing to be cared for and when you give cash you're probably just buying their next uh, bottle of booze or contributing to their drug habit so I've purposed that I want to be sensitive to others I want to be like Christ who's willing to do something to help people <clears throat> but I want to be like Christ who did what he did wisely. And it's a challenge for us and our culture because there's so many needs around us.
Well, let's move on. <clears throat> Verse 7 to 11 talks about a third group of people. It's almost like Christ invited to this dinner. He shows up. <clears throat> the guy drops, he's right in front of him. He heals him. And it's almost like right after Christ healed him, it's almost like the, the crowd that was the, invite, the invited guest said, okay, we got him, let's eat. All right? And <clears throat> verses 7 to 11 describe a group of people that I'm going to call the proud patties or the proud peers. You know, a peer, P-E-E-R, is someone with whom we view as equals. A peer is our equal. Well, in a real sense, the individuals at this event were peers because they all had to been invited to the same luncheon, the same dinner. So they're all invited guests, therefore they're peers in that way. And for many of us, sometimes the hardest people to have a ministry mindset are the people that we view as peers. You know, many of us find it easier to serve people that we think are above us because there's some, we like being around them. And some of us find a, a sense of satisfaction in serving people that we might view in some ways as being below us a bit in some ways. But where many of us would struggle is when I'm serving somebody that I view as my peer or my equal. Now, based on the Jewish law and tradition, most meals were partaken of while people reclined around a low, long, oval table. Each person would be lying on their left side, leaning on their left arm, with their feet behind them and their heads facing the table. It's very different from what we're used to. This was called, the seating arrangement was called a triclinium. And the seating arrangement was organized this way. So let's pretend that we have a long oval table up going in that direction. And up here is the head. The number one position of honor where the host would sit would be right here. The next position of honor is right here to the host left. The next highest position was over here. So it's one, two, three. Then it would go four, five, six, seven, seven, eight, nine. And so if you're used to that kind of a, an arrangement in your culture, you could walk into a room, look at the table, and you know how people stack up in the eyes of the host because of where they're seated. So here's the event. Christ has healed this guy. They say, okay, time to eat. We got him. Let's go. Let's get some, let's get some chow. And so they sit down. Verse 7 says, Christ observed how they chose out the chief places. In other words, if the door to the, the room was over there, once they, they had Christ, they think they had Christ trapped, they want to eat, everybody's scrambling to sit up here. Christ speaks to them and says, uh, verse 9, Christ cites the potential embarrassment when you're asked to leave your seat of prominence. And his advice is, when you're invited, don't seek the seats of prominence, lest the host come to you and say, <coughs> uh, excuse me, um, we had a seat for you back here. And then in front of everybody, 
you got to get up. And, and everybody's thinking, he's not the hot shot in the host that he thinks he is. Uh, Christ says, no, don't do that. Instead, when you're invited, choose to sit back there. And then he goes on to make this important principle. He says, the key principle he wants us to think about is that we're to wait, be willing to wait until people or God promote us. Now notice that. We're to be willing to wait until people or God promote us. Note the principle of verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. The Bible talks a lot about God choosing to exalt people. For example, think about this one. James chapter 4 verse 10 says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. What does that mean to humble yourself? To humble yourself means that you adopt the attitude and actions of a servant. To humble yourself means you adopt the attitude and actions of a servant. That's what it means to humble yourself. And the Bible says we will humble ourselves. God has ways of lifting us up. He will lift us up. Think about this one. First uh, <clears throat> Peter 5 verse 6 says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. In, in the original language, it means humble yourself. And at just the right time, God will lift you up. Some of you that are in really difficult relationships right now, family members, maybe co-workers, neighbors, friends, things are just hard right now. I just want to, this is a word of encouragement for you. Humble yourself. Adopt the attitude and actions of a servant in your relationships. And God's promise is, at the right time, he can lift you up in the eyes of the people that are currently your biggest critics. Now, <laughs> servants get used and abused and taken advantage of and are unappreciated. That's why I love the next verse from this. Verse 6 says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty of God, hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And the next verse says, Casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Isn't that wonderful? That as we humble ourselves and <laughs> we're treated like a servant, realize that when that happens, we cast our anxiety upon God who can lift us up in the eyes of people that are misusing us and taking advantage of us. Well, it's not just God lifting us up. The Bible talks about people lifting us up. Verse 10 says in our text, when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who's invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. <laughs> then you'll have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Sometimes people will recognize our character, our faithfulness, and exalt us. Proverbs 27.2 says, 
Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your lips. Proverbs 15.33 says, Before honor comes humility. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Proverbs 19.23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Uh, <clears throat> I'm a bit of a World War II buff, and my dad was an infantryman and fought in World War II at the Battle of the Bulge. And over the years, I've done a lot of reading about that. One of the, I also have an interest in um, just mil the military. Uh, and anyhow, uh, I came across a story about a young man who was raised in Chicago. His dad was a gangster. <laughs> and uh, was a part of the mob and this young man's name was Eddie he wanted a different lifestyle than he'd seen his dad living he knew he in order to do that he had to get out of town he had to make a big difference in his life so he joined the military and uh, he became a pilot and, and during World War II he became an ace one of the top um, aces in our fight against um, Germany and um, Chicago never forgot this man who distinguished himself by what he chose to do. He wanted his life to be different than his family upbringing and chose this and then distinguished himself with such great honor in World War II. So the next time you uh, fly to Chicago and you're at O'Hare International Airport, remember Artful Eddie O'Hare, the son of a gangster, but who distinguished himself doing what's right, and he was honored by man. The point is, Christ in his teaching says that we're to adopt the attitude of a, of a servant, and we're going to rely on either God, or we'll just wait until people exalt us, is the pattern. Well, let's move on to the final one here. I may need the tech team to help advance me one more here. There we go. Okay. Verses 12 to 14, the last verses of our text, talk about what I'm going to call weak Willie. And look with me at verses 12 to 14. Verse 12 says, Christ went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brother or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, when it comes to the weak willies or the powerless, our natural tendency is to give to get. That is, we have a tendency to do for others who can turn around and do something for us. We tend to go out to eat with people that probably or hopefully will invite us to go out to eat with them. Or we invite people to our home who we hope or think there might be a chance of them inviting 
us to their home. Or we give gifts to people who will probably do something nice for us. Verse 12 says that he went on to say to the one who had invited him on this Sabbath, that when you invite, invite people that cannot make repayment to you in return. Notice the four categories of people that he talked about. He said, uh, uh, that he mentions, he says, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors. Typically, those are all people that can give back to us. They're not to be our only focus. He's not teaching that it's wrong to invite friends or family or relatives or people that can reciprocate. But his point is, when you give a reception, invite people purposefully. Seek to minister to people that cannot respond to you in return. All four of the people that Christ mentions were powerless, especially in that culture. Our encouragement is from Christ's words, you'll be blessed. Since they don't have means to repay, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The key issue when it comes to working with people that are uh, in, in, in desperate need, the key issue is our willingness to focus on payday someday in eternity. A key passage of scripture that speaks about this is 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10 have become my life verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, I make it also my ambition that whether home in the body or absent, to be pleasing to him. That home in the body or absent means alive or dead. Covers all the bases. And he just says, my goal in life is to be pleasing to God. And then verse 10 <clears throat> says, <clears throat> we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. The Bible is teaching that there's coming a day for every one of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ when we're going to stand before God at what is translated as the judgment seat. In the original language, it's one word, it's the word bema, B-E-M-A. <clears throat> and the bema, back in Bible times, was not a court of law, like where a judge sits in a black robe and announces sentences on people. The Bema, back in Bible times, was much more like the award stand at the Olympics. You know, where there's the, the bronze, the silver, and the gold. That was the Bema, all right? I mean, it was where people were recognized for what they have done. And the scripture is teaching us that there's coming a day when all of us are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema to give an account for whether our works have been of gold, silver, and precious stone, or wood, hay, and stubble. We're going to give an account for how we've used our time, our energy, our resources, and so forth. Uh, I had a pastor who was frequently in saying that we ought to be living this day in anticipation of that day. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of each man's heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Or to put it another way, all of us are to be living our lives to rack up Bema points. All right? And uh, tomorrow morning, in order for me to catch my early morning flight to get back home, one of your dear brothers is picking me up at 3 or 3.30 in the morning. And uh, my custom is, when I get in the car, I'm going to say, you're racking up a beam of points, buddy. <laughs> Serving a preacher like this at 3.30 in the morning. 
That's what it means. We're to live this day in light of that day. We're to live our lives in such a way that when we stand before the Bema, we can give a good account to our precious Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Clear thinking about the judgment sheet is a powerful antidote to discouragement in life and in ministry. Well, let's draw a conclusion. Our theology reminds us that nobody comes into our lives and ministries that a sovereign God has not allowed. If we've got some crazy people in our circle relationships, it's not by accident. Somehow, some way, God wants to use them in our lives for our good and his glory. And I just want to encourage you to face the critical issue that you Face the critical issue that will allow you to minister to different groups of people as Christ would. With the critics in your life, I encourage you to be willing to face the pressure of scrutiny. Don't pull away from them just because they differ with you and are critical of you. With the hurting Helens that are around you, be willing to serve even when you don't have to. With the proud Patties, adopt the attitude of a servant. And wait until, or let people or God promote you. And with the weak willies, I would encourage you to focus on payday, someday, in eternity. The goal is that regardless of who is in our life and in our circumstances, every single one of us is dealing with all of those people in a way that is pleasing and honoring to Christ. Because we want to be like him as much as we can. The perfect man ministering to imperfect people in a perfect way. Let's pray. Oh God, would you please help us to be more and more like our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how we deal with the various people that you've put across our, in our lives and across our path, that we may represent you well and that someday we can stand before you, give a good account of our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.